Second Peter 3, and we'll start in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, the new heavens, the new earth, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the air of unprincipled men, and fall from your own steadfastness or your own stability, some translations say. But, how do you keep from falling from your own stability? But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Well, this is now the third and final message in this short series on Peter's exhortation found here in the first part of verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the first message, we focused in on the word grow, and we considered four general observations about growth in the Christian life. First of all, growth requires the presence of life. Something can't grow until it's first alive. And before anyone can spiritually grow, they must first be made spiritually alive by what the Bible calls the miracle of regeneration, or being born again, or being resurrected spiritually. Ephesians 2.4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So growth requires the presence of life. Secondly, growth is possible. When God raised you from the dead spiritually, he didn't simply raise you up and then kind of leave you to yourself to take things from there. No, he puts his very life, his spirit, inside of you, the spirit of the living God, the spirit of Christ, to cause you to progressively grow. He is at work in us, Philippians 2, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And because he is at work, we then can work out our own salvation, which is just another way of saying that we really can grow in the Christian life. Proverbs 4, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. Brighter and brighter and brighter. Jesus says you will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of your father. Brighter and brighter until that full day. So growth is possible. Thirdly, growth is necessary. Not only is it possible, but it's necessary. If we're going to withstand the onslaughts of false teachers, mockers, and scripture distorters that Peter warns us about in 2 Peter, then we need to be growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Defending alone is not enough. There needs to be positive growth, not just standing guard, not just building your little wall of intellectual arguments and hiding behind that but actually growing in grace, growing in the pathway of grace and knowledge. That will keep you from losing your stability. And then lastly, from the first message, growth is a process. 
Growth is a process. It's progressive. It occurs in stages. The word itself implies that. Grow. It implies progression. Stages. A process. According to Isaiah 61, every Christian is an oak of righteousness that God himself has planted. But no one starts off as a fully grown oak tree. It's not transplantation, but he starts with that little seed. Everyone goes through a process of tending and watering and pruning, but eventually, beloved, after years, years of care by this master gardener, you will stand forth as a fully grown oak of righteousness that can withstand these false teachers and mockers and scripture distorters that Peter warns us about. Growth is a process, but the process is certain when God is the one who plants you. So those are four general observations on growth that we talked about in the first message. And then this last Sunday, then, we focused on the second key word in Peter's, ex- Peter's exhortation, and that's the word grace. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we structured our time last time around three questions. First of all, what is grace? Can't grow in it if you don't know what it is, right? Second question, why does Peter focus on grace and his exhortation? And then thirdly, how can we grow in grace. And so the first question last time was, what is grace? And we said that you could define grace, it's typically defined, kind of a textbook definition, as God's unmerited favor, his unmerited or unearned favor. Or, and I like this definition a little bit better from a writer named Paul Zoll, he defined grace as God's one-way love, his one-way love. And he said this, this is Paul Zoll, Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. It is being loved when you are the opposite of lovable. Isn't that good? One-way love. And as I said last time, beloved, there is real security in this for Christians, in that definition, one-way love. Real security in that. Why? Because if God's love for you began when you were totally unlovable, then his love will continue regardless of how unlovable you now feel or how unlovable the devil tells you that you are. It doesn't matter, you see. It wasn't about you at the beginning. And it's not about you now. And it's not going to be about you at the end. It's one-way love coming down one way. Nothing to do with what you can give in return. That's why Paul could say in Romans 8 that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Security, one-way love, there is security in that. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why George Matheson could write that hymn, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. You can rest in a love like that. So what is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is one-way love. And then the second question last time, why does Peter focus on grace? Of course, he focuses on knowledge too, and we'll get to that. But why grace in this part of his exhortation? And I said it was because of Peter's personal experience of grace through his denial of the Lord and the restoration that followed, which prompted him to emphasize the believer's need to grow in grace specifically in the Christian life. Peter knew firsthand that when temptations and pressures bring a person to the point of collapse, 
and even failure, that the one thing that can bring stability back like nothing else and keep it there is grace, is one-way love, the one-way love of God in Christ. And so when he exhorts us to be on our guard that we don't fall from our own steadfastness, that we don't lose our stability, he tells us that the way to do that is by growing in the grace of Jesus because he's speaking there from personal experience. Thirdly then, last question we talked about last time, how can we grow in grace? It's one thing to know what it is, but how do you grow in it? Because Peter doesn't just say, be able to define it or know what it is. He tells us to grow in grace. How can we grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus? And the answer we focused on last time was from Romans 12:2 by the renewing of our minds. Paul says this in Romans 12:2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, we grow in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when our minds are renewed and transformed by the displays of that grace that are found on the pages of Scripture. The Bible, beloved, is like an art gallery filled from wall to wall with Rembrandts of grace, Monet's of one-way love, one glorious picture after another, describing how the God of creation bursts into the lives of fallen, sinful human beings with mercy, compassion, and love. The Bible is all about that. And we looked at just one of those pictures last time from 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might be made rich. And that's just one picture among thousands. And like a blazing autumn sunset, and I love sunsets, and I love especially sunsets in autumn and winter. I sometimes try to walk to work those times of year, and some of you know we live, there's that walking trail right right by our house with the horse pasture there, and the sun, you can just see the sun rise over that hill right there it's just unbelievable sometimes and those scenes those autumn sunsets are just magnetic and they're captivating and it's like you stop to look and you can't turn away and that's what these scenes of grace in the bible are like they're magnetic they're captivating but they're also transforming and that's the key they're also transforming second corinthians 318 we all with unveiled face Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed, metamorphosized into the same image from glory to glory. We are transformed as we behold the glory of the Lord. And nowhere, beloved, nowhere does the glory of the Lord shine forth like it does when the grace of God is on display in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, what we want to do today then is focus on the third key word in Peter's exhortation here, and that's the word knowledge. So once again, 2 Peter 3, 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the air of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now notice here that Peter does not simply say, grow in knowledge, and then stop. He's not telling us to enroll in night classes or something. That's not what he's getting at. 
It's not just growing knowledge, period. It's a specific kind of knowledge that Peter is after. He wants us to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He wants us to get to know Jesus himself better. And this is quite a thought, isn't it? The man who once said, Peter, who once said, I do not know the man, (laughs) now wants us to get to know this man, this God-man, better. So my first point today, three points, first point today is simply this. Jesus can be known. Jesus can be known. And before you can get to know him better, you first have to know him, right? So I want to start today just by asking you literally the single most important question that you can ever be asked. Do you know him? Do you know the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Now, listen to me. I'm not asking if you've heard of him. I'm not asking if you've sung songs about him. I'm not asking if you've prayed to him. And I'm not even asking if you've made sacrifices for him. Because you can do all of those things and more, and they can be nothing more than meaningless religious activity. Do you know him? Really? Personally? Lovingly? Do you know Him, do you have a personal relationship with the living God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Because you see, that's what you were created for. That's what you were made for. One of the most profound things that you can say about something is this is why it was made. This is its purpose. This is its reason for existence, right? What were you made for, beloved? Why are you here? What's the point? You were made to know God. You were made to have a relationship with him. He made you in his image so that you could have a relationship with him. It's stamped, indelibly stamped on your very being. You can't erase it. And we see echoes of this everywhere, don't we? No matter how much people try to erase it, they cannot erase it. It's indelibly stamped. This this longing for relationship, this desire, this craving for love and acceptance and belonging. It's why young people a lot of them anyway, send thousands of text messages every day. want to belong. want to be in the know. I want to fit. I want to be accepted. It's why some people spend hours upon hours on Facebook every day. It's why romance novels have been the most popular genre of fiction for years now. Years. Romance novels. It's why, as Conrad Merle once said, everyone likes a good love song now and then. (laughs) You see, beloved, we crave relationship. We can't escape it. We were made for it. The problem is, though, is that we're born into this world alienated from God because of our sin. We love the darkness rather than the light. So instead of seeking out a relationship with God through Jesus, we try to fill up that longing relationship with online friends happy hour at the bar one night stands and harlequin paperbacks but you can't escape it you see people crave love acceptance 
and belonging. And what we need to realize is there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with the desire itself. It's how we were made. The problem is that people don't want anything to do with the only one who can actually give them the love and acceptance and belonging that they crave. And they waste their lives trying to find it somewhere else until God steps in, until he begins to woo and to draw. Turn, if you would, to Hosea chapter 2. I I love this passage. Hosea chapter 2. Hosea is right after Daniel in the Old Testament. Hosea chapter 2. The book of Hosea, as a lot of you know, is a book about how a faithless Israel forsakes a relationship with the living God to pursue other lovers. And at the end of verse 13 in chapter 2, God says that Israel sought to follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. Do you see that? And that's what happens. People follow other lovers and forget God. They forget the Lord. So what does God do? Is that the end of the story? Well, if you're a Christian here today, what did he do in your life when you were following other lovers and forgetting about him? What he does is he seeks you out and he captures your heart. Notice there in verse 14, Hosea 2.14. Now keep this, this whole context here is people are running away from God to pursue other lovers. Here's what God says. The God is speaking here. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. Literally, speak upon her heart. It's like God speaks directly to your heart. Then I will give her her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor as a door of hope, and she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will no longer call me Ishi, which is my husband, or I'm sorry, you will call me Ishi, my husband, and will no longer call me Bailey, my Baal, my master. In other words, no longer a slave to idols, but married to God, my husband. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, no more idols, so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. In that day I will also make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. God makes you put down your arms of rebellion. And I will make them lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and compassion, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. This is an incredible description here of salvation. Verse 14, God allures you. You're, going, you're being allured by other lovers. God says, I'm going to allure you. God allures you. He takes you to a quiet place, the wilderness, away from every other distraction, away from every competing voice. 
so he can speak to you alone. And then he speaks kindly to you. Literally, he speaks upon your heart. Then he betrothes you to himself. And what's the purpose, beloved, of all this alluring and speaking and betrothing? Well, verse 20, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, then you will know the Lord personally, intimately, knowing him. The purpose, you see, of salvation is the restoration of the personal relationship with the living God that you were created to have. You forsook that and went back to other lovers, and so he goes after you and brings you back permanently to himself. Jeremiah 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love. See, even when you were in a far country, even when you were running after those other lovers, he loved you. He's just giving you time, waiting for his perfect time. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were pursuing other lovers. Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have drawn you with loving kindness. The New Testament counterpart to Hosea 2 is the woman at the well in John 4. She had spent her life going after other lovers. She had five prior husbands, was living with a guy right now who wasn't her husband, trying to satisfy that inward thirst, you see, that can only be satisfied by the living water that Jesus offers, the living water of a personal relationship with him. And I love the way one song says it. It's an old hymn called Satisfied. All my life long I had panted for a drink from some cool spring, that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. Isn't that the woman at the well, you see? Hallelujah, he has found me. (laughs) The one my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies all my longings. Through his blood I now am saved. I love that line. Hallelujah, he has found me. So I ask you today, is that your testimony? Do you know him? Do you know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? If you're a Christian here today, you do. Certainly, you do. You were called into fellowship with him. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Works both ways. You know him. As children of God, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. One of those blessings is eternal life. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But eternal life is not just existing forever. It's not just existing Eternally. No. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, Jesus says. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. Knowing. Knowing. Personally. This is salvation. This is eternal life. This is Christianity. Everything else, beloved, is just dead religion. If it doesn't include this element of personally Having a relationship with the living God, it's dead religion. Run from it. 
So the first point here is this, that Jesus can be known. If we're going to grow in our knowledge of him, as Peter exhorts us to do, we must first be sure that we know him. So do you know him? Do you know him today? That's the question. Second point today is that Jesus can be known better. Jesus can be known, but he could also be known better. Every Christian knows the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and every Christian can know him more. Now, that's a pretty amazing statement if you stop and think about it. Why? Because some of you have been Christians for 30, 40 years, right? And you would think after 30 or 40 years with someone that you pretty much get to know them about as good as you're going to get to know them. And after 40 years, you kind of exhausted the topic, right? After a while, there's just not much more you can discover about a person. But not so with this person. Not so with him. Why? Because when you're dealing with Jesus, you see, you're not simply dealing with a man. You're dealing with the infinite depths of deity, godhood. Listen to this, John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This one who was with God in the beginning becomes flesh, becomes a man. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And, beloved, there is always more grace and truth in Him for you to discover. Deity. Turn to Colossians 2. Again, every Christian knows the Lord Jesus Christ, and every Christian can know Him more. Colossians 2, Paul's praying here, in verse 2 he says, he's praying that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. God's, what's God's mystery? Well, he tells you it's Christ. His mystery is Christ himself. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, 40 years cannot exhaust all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are in Christ. Go to chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All the fullness of God eternal dwells in bodily form. I don't even, I don't even know what that means. I mean, how do you even explain that? It's true. We can know Jesus, but we can never know him fully because he is God. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Now, the fact that we can never know Jesus fully ought to be tremendously encouraging to us. 
at first it's kind of depressing, you know, because if you're task-oriented like me, you want to get to the end of something, right? Like finish this. But I started to think about this. This is so encouraging that you can never know Jesus fully. Why? Because it means that the joy of discovery never ends. Some of you have been on vacation before, and you're having the time of your life. You're seeing new places, doing new things, discovering new things. But as the days go by, you start to have this feeling of dread in your heart. Why? Because with each passing day, you know that you're getting closer and closer to the end. And you don't want it to end. Some of you have read a book before that's been like that for you, and you're reading this book, and you just you love the world, the setting, you know, that the author has created. You love getting to know the characters, discovering more and more of the plot, and you can't stop turning the pages. But at the same time, it's depressing because you know that with every page that you turn, you're getting closer and closer to the end, and you don't want it to end. But what I'm saying to you today, beloved, is that Jesus never ends. You see, that's the point. The joy of discovery never runs out. You really can keep on turning the pages forever. Every discovery you make of his patience, his mercy, his purity, his kindness, his holiness, his love is literally just a drop in an infinite ocean. Jonathan Edwards said it like this. He was comparing Christ to a river in several different ways. And he says this. He says, Christ is like a river in another respect. A river is continually flowing. There are fresh supplies of water coming from the fountainhead continually so that a man may live by it and be supplied with water all his life. So Christ is an ever-flowing fountain. He is continually supplying his people and the fountain is not spent. They who live upon Christ may have fresh supplies from him to all eternity. They may have an increase of blessedness that is new and new still and which will never come to an end. An increase of blessedness which is new and new still and which will never come to an end. Because Jesus never ends, the increase of blessedness never ends. Not just in heaven, but even here and now. Knowing more and more, discovering more and more. Sometimes you hear people say, all good things must come to an end, right? It's not true. It's not true with Jesus. With him, the joy of discovery never ends. You can know him more. But this fact that that the joy of discovery never ends also means something else. I'm going to chase a little rabbit trail here. This also means that there is a word in the English language that should never be found on the lips of a Christian, and that's the word bored. Bored, right? Now follow me here. If Jesus is infinitely interesting, and he is, and if it's impossible to know him fully, which it is, then the Christian should never be bored. Right? There is always something new to discover about Jesus, some new truth, some new application, some new little glimpse of his glory previously unseen. 
How could you ever be bored? I mean, can you imagine the Apostle Paul sitting at his desk, you know, and he's finishing off the book of Romans, and be the glory forever, amen, and puts down the quill and just says, oh, man, I am bored today. (laughs) It just does not fit with the Apostle Paul, right? Never in a million years could you see that coming out of the mouth of the Apostle Paul. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. And let this passage be a rebuke to our complaints of boredom. And I'm including myself in that. Because I've said that. I'm bored today. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, verse 7. Philippians 3, 7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him. So he just can't stop saying it. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it. I'm not there. Or have already become perfect. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And like the Apostle Paul, beloved, let these words, I mean, may God make these words the cry of our hearts, the cry of my heart, that I may know him. I press on, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal. There's no place for boredom, you see, when Jesus is the prize to be pursued. No place for it. If your relationship with Jesus is boring, the fault is yours. Sorry, it's true. Because you cannot tell me that you can read Jesus' words and works in the gospel accounts and come away yawning. And if you can, the problem is with you, not with Jesus. It's like my students at school. You know, they'll come back from vacation or something. I'll ask, you know, where'd you go? Well, we went to the Grand Canyon, and it was boring. It's like, boring? Are you blind? Do you realize, beloved, that when a person says that the Grand Canyon is boring, they're really saying absolutely nothing about the Grand Canyon. All they're doing is revealing their own blindness to the glory of God and creation. That's all they're doing. And when a person says that Jesus is boring, they're not saying anything about Jesus. All they're doing is admitting their own spiritual blindness and stupidity. Jesus is never boring, but there are times when we are. There are times when we're dull, spiritually dull. 
And it's then that we ought to pray, like Paul does in Ephesians 1, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. The problem is, is we settle for a boring Jesus, what we think is a boring Jesus, rather than asking God to take the scales off of our eyes, to rebuke our coldness. And that leads to the last point today, which is this. Jesus can be known better through his words and works recorded for us in Scripture. Again, Peter's exhortation to us back in 2 Peter 3 is that we grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the first point, Jesus can be known. Second point, Jesus can be known better. Everyone can know him more. And then the third point, Jesus can be known better through the Scriptures. Through the Scriptures. Now, how do you get to know people? How do you get to know someone? You ever thought about that? Like, how do you get to know a person? Well, you get to know them by listening to what they say and by observing what they do, right? That's how you get to know someone. You listen to what they say, you observe what they do. In the same way, we grow in our knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by listening to what he said and by observing what he did. And the things that he said and the works that he did are recorded for us in Scripture. And when we pray, like Paul does in Ephesians 1, that God would give us a spirit of revelation in in the knowledge of him, the primary way that God is going to answer that prayer in your life is through the Scriptures. It's by reading Scripture that he's going to answer that prayer. Because it's here, you see, it's in the Scriptures that the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed to us. And I know this probably seems a little anticlimactic, but we've got to get back to the Scriptures. You see, this is our problem most of the time. We, want, we say we want to know Jesus better, but we're really looking for a shortcut route. Just read this article. Just listen to that sermon. Just study this new book, and bam! Right? That's what we want. Shortcut. All the while, our Bibles gather dust on the shelf because we're looking for that new thing, the shortcut route. There's nothing wrong with those other things, but nothing can take the place of Scripture when it comes to growing in our knowledge of Jesus. Nothing can. So the question, do you desire greater stability and steadfastness in your Christian life? That's what Peter's exhorting us, right? Don't lose your stability, don't lose your steadfastness, but grow in the knowledge of him. If that's what you want, then I have a rock-solid, foolproof, foolproof method for you to follow. And here it is. Step one, set aside some time when you can be distraction-free, whenever that is. Step two, Get out your Bible. Step three, pray and ask God to show you his glory in the face of Jesus. Pray. Step four, read. Step five, repeat regularly. (laughs) 
And I'm not joking. <laughs> I'm really not. Because I guarantee you, beloved, that if you do that, you will grow. I guarantee it. Because God's word is not going to return to him void. He is not going to let you put the time in seeking his face and not reward you for it. I thought these were good. These were quotes from Paul Washer that I read recently. So true. He said, I find that my times of weakness and strength are directly related to the amount of time I spend in communion with God through the word and prayer. He also said this, often the cause of our spiritual weakness is treated as a complex mystery. Why am I so weak? Why am I so depressed? Why am I so discouraged? Why don't I have more joy? It's like this great mystery. Yet, we only need to ask, how much are we in the word and prayer? I mean, most of the time, 99% of the time, that's really what it goes back to, right? We just don't want to admit that. We want to make it harder than what it is. And we want a shortcut route for getting out of it. We're so good at making things more complicated than they really need to be. But back in 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says that he just wants us to focus on one thing, simplicity, purity of devotion to Christ. That's it. Simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Just be devoted to him. That's all he wants. And just like in decades gone by when a husband would go off to fight in a war, leaving his wife behind, because of her devotion to him, she would treasure up every little note and letter that she received from him, sometimes months apart from each other. She would read those letters and reread them and reread them again because she loved her husband and was devoted to him. In the same way, our devotion to Christ ought to drive us back to his word, his love letter to us, over and over and over Again, to meet with him there, to hear his voice, to be transformed by his glory that shines forth literally from every part of this book from beginning to end. Follow this with your mind from the beginning of the scriptures to the end. Jesus is the one through whom and for whom all things were created. He is the seed of the woman, Genesis 3. He's the seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent. He is the ark that we can take refuge in and be saved from the floodwaters of God's wrath. He is the true seed of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth are blessed. He's the true sacrifice, sacrificial system in the Old Testament. He's the true sacrifice that takes away sin. He is the great high priest who presents that sacrifice to God on behalf of his people. He's the true prophet who spoke forth the very words of God. He is the king who inherited the throne of his father David. Getting to the Gospels, he is the word made flesh who spoke as no man ever spoke. He's the son of God who performed many good works from the father. He is the exalted king who will reign until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And he is the book of Revelation, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, who left to prepare a place for us and who will return to take us there. 
I say again that our devotion to Christ ought to drive us back to his word over and over and over again to meet him there, to hear his voice, and to be transformed by his glory that shines forth in literally, literally every part of it from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. It's all about him. 2 Peter 3, I'll finish again, just read the verses. You therefore, beloved... Knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the air of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.